L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. Me, I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and there's Jerry Jerome Rowland. You put the three of us together in a room, shake it up, pick out some of the chest hairs, you got stuff you should know. Boy, that was gross. I thought you'd like that. <laughs> you ready to get I, angry on this one? I'm trying to keep it cool, man. <laughs> I woke up uh, yesterday and said, I really want to tick off a significant portion of our listeners. So what could, what topic could we do? And I thought, voter suppression, perfect. Well, you know what, man? I've been trying to think about the, the why this bugs me so much. Voter suppression obviously bugs me because it's not right. Sure. But what really bugs me, I think, is that if you're in Washington, D.C., and you're in government, like, everyone knows about this stuff, and everyone talks about it, frankly, when mm-hmm. microphones run around. Right. Like, do you watch the show Veep? I love it. I've only seen season five, but, man, it is so good. Like, su- supposedly, that's kind of how it is. Sure. Like, when the microphones aren't around, they they all talk about politics in very frank terms but as soon as you get on television or in front of a microphone you have to toe the party lines on both sides with this rhetoric crap and you it ends up you can't even really talk about the things well no but plus also i think one of the reasons that that is the way it is is because you got to feed the sheeple like a certain like you said that that company line or that party line because if you really talked about what was really going on, some of the people who agree with your BS would otherwise disagree with the actual thing that's going on. You know what I'm saying? Well, yeah. And let's just go ahead and say it in this one uh, on voter suppression. Historically, uh, the Republican Party has purposely done things to try and keep certain people from voting because they probably vote Democrat. Right. And they can't just say that. So they say, no, it's really about voter fraud. Right. That's a big problem. And Democrats want those votes. And they say it's because they just want a very inclusive democratic process. But that's not true. They want those votes because they're probably going to be Democrat votes. Right. And Democrats will do anything, including voter fraud, to get people to the polls or to get those votes. That's the current. That's the argument that's going on right now. Yeah. But you know what I'm saying, though? Like, neither one of them can say those things. So they have to stand behind these two kind of bogus reasons. 
and it's just infuriating. Right. So the reasons, these bogus reasons, ostensibly bogus reasons, are that if you take measures to make it a little difficult to vote, what you're going to do is protect the integrity of the electoral system, right? This is the, this is the Republicans viewpoint. If you do that, then there's going to be a couple of things. One, you're going to cut down on fraud, which again, the Democrats are just total fraudsters when it comes to, to voting as far as Republicans are concerned. Right. And then it's also going to, in some cases, sure, it's going to make it a little difficult for some people to vote, but the Republican way of thinking is if you really care about voting, you're going to do whatever it takes to get to that poll and, and register and vote. And if you don't, if, if just a couple of simple barriers will keep you from doing that, then pff, nuts to you, man. I don't care about your vote. Yeah. And TS for the Democrats, who you probably would have voted for. That's like that's the that's the argument in public that you're talking about that you're saying is bogus when it's really. These people who are having access issues to voting because of the the laws that the GOP is putting up um, are more likely to vote for Democrats. So hence, these are these are targeted attempts to block people from voting for Democrats. Yeah, that's that's the reality of it. Allegedly, we should say, Chuck, like there's just calling it voter suppression is kind of controversial in and of itself. Well, yeah, no one likes to use those words because uh, on on the one side, like you said, they there's like it's not about voter suppression. It's about like, you know, what's wrong with having to have an ID to go cast a vote? Right. I uh, mean, on its face, it makes sense. Sure. You know, they say you have to have ID to buy alcohol. If some clerk decides that he wants to see your ID, you have to show it to him or you can't buy alcohol. What's the problem with that? You know, well, Right. And then you go to some parts of Texas and they say, well, you can use your, your gun license to vote, uh, but don't <laughs> use your student ID. That doesn't count. Right. So like mm-hmm. it's, it's the fact that they're all very targeted and, you, and everyone will see as we go through this, it's very targeted. Like and we'll, we'll bring up specific cases where, you know, they find out like, oh, man, um, Leading up to the, the election uh, where uh, Barack Obama's first elect presidential election, um, we saw a surge in increase in black voters in this county. So let's go to that county specifically and introduce some legislation that's going to make it harder for them to get to the polls. Right. Specifically there. Yeah. Like so, it's maddening. Oh, it is. It's infuriating. Even uh, I was reading kind of the other side on this by a guy named David French, who writes for the National Review. Yeah. And he was saying, even he was like, if that happens, what you just described, it should be vigorously litigated that, that, that there's no excuse for that, for anything that's, that's specifically targeting like minorities or the elderly or making it difficult for any group that to, to, to like purposefully making it harder for them to vote and targeting people like that, then yeah, it should be litigated and those, those rules should be thrown out. Well, and that happens. It is litigated, litigated and quite often right. courts do say, like, you can't do this. And they say, all right, well, we won't do it again, but we, it worked on this election. Right. Well, one of the reasons why this, we're, we're currently in the midst of a, a really massive wave of voter suppression laws that are, are sweeping the country right now. And one of the reasons why it's being allowed to go on is because just like in Citizens United, the um, Roberts Supreme Court 
said, you know what? Things are fine. We're just going to gut a, a, an important provision of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But it, it basically said you these states and these specific districts in these states have a history of voter suppression. Um and we, the federal government, are going to keep an eye on you so much so that you can't make any changes to your voting procedures without the federal government approving it. Right. And in 2013, I believe the Supreme Court said, you know what? We're fine. We're post-racial. We had a black president. We don't need that anymore. And they overturned that provision of the Voting Rights Act. And it's allowed, uh, again, this this massive wave of voter suppression laws to be passed in this country. Man, we're already riled up. Should it's we... tough. It's tough not to be, you know. What were you going to say? Should we take a break? No, not a break. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, should we just uh, go back and talk about history a little bit? Yeah, let's, man. Because the history is much easier to stomach. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, okay, so um, and you you put this article together with our own article and a bunch of other good stuff. Yes, nice work. Thanks. Um, but you point out that very astutely that it's not in the Constitution, the right to vote. This has been uh, left up to the states over the years, um, even though we've had, you know, amendments since then that obviously allowed certain people the right to vote. It, it wasn't just originally included like, hey, everyone can vote. Everyone has the right to vote in this country. Right. No, originally the only group that the um, that citizens of the United States could vote for was the House of Representatives. The Senate and the president and the president still, this is the case, were elected by an electoral college. Right. Correct. So eventually they added Senate seats for people to be able to directly vote for. But in the first presidential election in 1789, um, the one that that where George Washington won and was elected to the presidency, uh, the first presidency of the United States, um, like 6% of the population in the U.S. at the time were eligible to vote, and that was it. Yeah, it was only white men uh, and freed African-American slaves in just four states. I saw six. Six states? I was really surprised to see that, but yeah. Who owned property. Right, that's a big one. Right, so that left like eight guys. <laughs> right. <laughs> they were allowed to, but yeah, you had to own property. And that was the, the big division at first, even apparently more so than um, by race. It was by whether you were a landowner or a property owner, right? Yeah. And you had to be 21. There were certain religious restrictions, too. So like <sighs> you said, that ended up 6%. 6% of the population could vote. That's right. I mean, I'm going to cut them a little slack on the first election. Say they right. they were trying to get it together, right? But six percent is an alarmingly no, low number. But they probably thought that was the six percent of people that mattered, right? You know? I guess it's it's a, it's more inclusive than the one percent, yeah. But it's still pretty pretty <laughs> low. We're in the single digits here, you know. Uh, but like you were saying, it's um a class distinction distinction was really kind of the the biggest deal, uh, mm. and that changed a bit when uh, war veterans who fought for independence from Britain stepped up and said, hey, a lot of us are not landowners and we helped free this country. Um, can can we vote? And little by little, states said, all right, you know, you don't have to own property. Um, it's 1850. And let's just say all white males can vote and some African-American males, but definitely not women. Right. Not yet. Just give us another seven decades or so. Okay? Right. We're just trying to to 
keep our heads from spinning over letting people who don't own property vote. Exactly. So the, isn't that bizarre? Did you know that the first group to agitate for, for voting rights was white men who didn't own land? No. War veterans? I, did I didn't know that either. So, um, something really big happened in the middle of the 19th century that changed things as far as voting went. And that was the Civil War. Yeah. And the 13th Amendment that ended slavery, followed by the 15th Amendment that granted suffrage to all men in the United States. Yeah, regardless of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. But uh, again, and it not women. <laughs> right. And it should have said dot, 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 supposedly. Because R- right. that 15th Amendment is what unleashed sort of the first, uh, like, like, before there was just voter suppression. They were like, no, you just can't vote. And now they said, uh, well, you can vote. And so they had to be creative with their voter suppression. Right. And at first there was a period of reconstruction in the, in the South after the Civil War where the federal troops, the, they, I guess it was led still by General Ulysses Grant, if he wasn't president by now, um, where federal troops were, occupying the South under martial law, right? Yeah. And they were enforcing the 15th Amendment and um, other laws that had come into effect after the Civil War. And it was like black people could hold office. They could vote. They um, could live in this transition period from slavery into freedom. And they were doing it under the auspices of the uh, the Union Army. Um, but then the U- Union Army withdrew. Pretty prematurely, I think in the 1870s, early 1870s, and it went from the Reconstruction South, which ended up lasting just a few years, to what became known as the Jim Crow South, which was basically slavery by any other name than slavery. Yeah, that's when the the Dixiecrats, uh, which were conservative uh, Democrats, uh, I guess conservatives of the day, uh, that's when they started to get creative and said, all right, well, we have this new 15th Amendment. So let's try and think of a lot of ways, even though the law says that black men can vote, that we can keep them from doing so. Um, so how about a literacy test? Um, and not only just a literacy test, but maybe one only in English. So that way there's no way an immigrant uh, can vote if they can't read English. Mm-hmm. Uh, or maybe some poll taxes uh, where you have to pay like like a dollar to register to vote. But but in like 2016 money, that was like eight hundred dollars. I actually looked it up. It's uh, nine thousand dollars in the in the early 1900s. I looked up like Texas. It was a dollar fifty to register. And that would be like forty three dollars today. Yeah. But, you know, for a poor person who, you know, is maybe waffling on whether or not to bother voting. Sure. Charging them $43 is probably going to seal a deal. And George actually had a, a cumulative tax, apparently, for many years where every year, uh, like if you were 40 years old, um, every year from the age of 21 that you weren't registered to vote, you would have to pay per year when you first registered to vote. Oh, wow. So that was clearly targeting like a freed slave in his 50s would then have to pay a cumulative tax from the age from 21 up to 50. And, you know, and again, that just basically meant no one was going to register. Well, there are a lot of grandfather clause laws, too, which basically said that if you were registered to vote prior to the 15th Amendment or your grandfather was registered to vote prior to the 15th Amendment, um, you 
you were eligible now under these Jim Crow laws, but most uh, black people in the South were not registered to vote, nor were their grandparents prior to the 15th Amendment. So that basically just stripped them of their voting rights automatically as well. And you mentioned the literacy test, too, Chuck. Did you look into those at all? Uh, Yeah. I mean, some of them. Some were like, like recite the U.S. Constitution. Yeah. <laughs> some of them, some <laughs> were like that. 20, 20 pages long and they would be administered by white Democrats. And again, Democrats at the time were the party of conservatives. Um, they, I, I, we should do an episode on that on when the parties switched yeah, we've, names. We've chatted about that before. So, um, it would be left up to this poll worker who is administering the liter- literacy test. It would be left up to their judgment whether the person passed or failed. Yeah. Like it, like it was up to them. It wasn't an objective test. It was a subjective test. Yeah. And so the, the end result of this is in 1940, 1940, not 1840, uh, these suppression campaigns uh, worked so well that only 3% of eligible voters, uh, African-American Southerners, were registered to vote by 1940. And you know, it's probably one of the worst parts about that. Is that I'll bet in 1940 that the average white person considered black people politically disengaged in this country because of statistics like that. Oh, right. So yeah. like, oh, they don't even vote. Yeah. They yeah. don't even care about politics. Right. Only 3% of them are, are registered to vote even, you know? Yeah. And this wasn't limited to the South, uh, kind of up North and nationwide. There were things going on. Uh, notably there was a, uh, for naturalized citizens, it was very long residency requirements, um, basically to try and keep uh, immigrants from voting for a long right. time. Especially the Chinese, apparently. Did you know that? I did not. There was a, a, an 1882 law. <laughs> it's pretty on the nose. The Chinese Exclusion Act. And it said, if you're Chinese and you're an immigrant, you're not allowed to become a citizen, which meant they couldn't vote. And this was on the books in the United States until 1943. Yeah, this stuff is in ancient history. That That's why it's no. so shocking, you know. Yeah. Uh, so 1920 comes along and um, women were finally given the right to vote. Yeah. Uh, thanks to the 19th Amendment. Uh, and you mentioned the Voting Rights Act of 1965, uh, which finally got rid of the Jim Crow voting laws officially uh, in the South. Um but that didn't mean that suppression and intimidation didn't still go on. No, you know, like whenever the federal government decided that it needed to lend a hand and assist um, the black population of the southern states in, in gaining their citizenship, that there would be a huge backlash to that. And uh, initially it meant the formation of the Klan. And then after the um, Civil Rights Act, the Klan again re- experiences huge resurgence in popularity and membership and acts of white terrorism just became the norm. And now that we're looking back on it, you know, we think of like the civil rights movement. When I think of that, I don't think of it as actually agitating for civil rights. I think of it as agitating for full citizenship and, and equal treatment under the law and everything that makes up civil rights. But you don't think of it as like really at the basis what the civil rights leaders were agitating for were things like protection of their voting rights. Right. E- access to to the polls, just as any white person would enjoy. And that march, that very famous march from Selma to Montgomery um, did you see that movie, Selma? No, I still haven't seen that one. 
It's a great movie. Yeah. Have you seen uh, either 13 or 13th? Oh, no. I'm dying to see that one, too. Dude, that one, that's amazing. It's just it's just amazing. It's really well done. And the stuff they're talking about is just so eye opening. It's, it's great. Like it's, it's one of those ones you'll watch more than once, I'm sure. Yeah. But that march from Selma to Montgomery was a march for voting rights. Yeah. And it actually helped usher in this voting rights act of 1965 because, um, the, the Alabama state patrol, I believe, on like horseback with batons and whips and um uh nightsticks and tear gas just ruthlessly beat these unarmed peaceful protesters in the street of Selma and it was all captured on on national television and broadcast and it really changed the mood of the nation as far as that goes and it actually was supremely counterproductive to people who were against black voting because it helped protect black vote um by by the federal government through the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Yeah, another thing that came with that act was uh, an official ban on any, uh, quote, test or device, end quote, uh, to qualify voters on the basis of literacy, education, or fluency in English. Uh, and then it took all the way till 1966 until poll taxes were banned, um, which was kind of way later than I thought. Uh, well, it was like the next year. Well, no, I mean just period. Oh, yeah. No, those Jim Crow laws were basically done away with after a century. Yeah. As they were around for a century in one form or another. Unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, during uh, Vietnam, they finally lowered the age uh, voting age to 18 in 1971 post-Vietnam because uh, veterans were like, hey, I can be drafted and shot and killed for my country, but I can't vote. Yeah. Uh, and they all went, uh, yeah, that's a good point. It is a good point still to argue that one. Uh, you want to take a break? Yeah, man. All right. We'll be right back and talk about the 11 voter suppression techniques. L-A-S-I-K. LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K. LASIK.com. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Chuck. 
All right, uh, we're back. And, um, before actually we move on to some of these 11 techniques, um, my question for you, sir, uh, the basis of all this is voter fraud is what the argument is for, right. for a lot of these, especially with ID. So is that like, is voter fraud real? So, um, I mean, everything I came across that I, that strike me as legitimate, although I'm not sure how, um, legitimate, like say a conservative might find it, but like the Brookings institution to me, it's definitely left leaning, but I would also say that it's quite a legitimate think tank. Right. Um, but the studies that I've come across all say, no, it's not really a thing. Like the, it's, it's basically a, a specter. It's a potential possibility, but it's, it, in actuality, it's not a thing. I, and one thing I saw was that, um, this came, I'm not sure where this one came from, but 86 convictions out of 300 million votes cast in the last few elections. I would say that's probably about 10 to 12 elections. There's only been 86 convictions for voter fraud. And the other issue with this, specifically specifically with voter ID laws, is that most of those cases of fraud where people have actually been convicted of voter fraud were mail-in ballots. And so like a voter ID card is not going to do anything for that. Right. Because you don't you don't produce ID to mail in a, a ballot. So the idea that there is a big problem with voter fraud is um, ostensibly not real. Although, of course, Trump is going to um, he's he's carrying out an investigation. He's formed a commission. So I'm very curious to find out what they find. But um even if it were a real thing from the, the pattern that we're seeing, the voter ID laws aren't going to help anything anyway. So, so insofar th- as it actually makes a difference in an election outcome, it is negligible. No. And I have to say there are re- it's not like the people who who are who say, especially rank and file GOP members. Right. Not necessarily like high elected officials, but just like the average GOP party member. It's not like they're lunatics for believing that there's such a thing as widespread voter fraud, right? Like this is a, a big drum that's beat on the conservative side in, in conservative media. But there's also like um, instances in the past that can be pointed to saying like, see, see, this is what they do. Um, like Acorn definitely didn't help anything. Right. Uh, Acorn was a uh, community organizing um, group that had been around since I think the 80s, and they were dedicated to getting um, lower income, minority, people who traditionally had trouble accessing um, the polls or voting, getting them registered and getting them to vote, right? So they were very much aligned with the Democratic viewpoints of universal access, universal participation in elections. And um, they were very much a left-leaning organization. They were associated with Obama very famously. And then equally famously, they were this disgraced organization because they were accused of voter fraud, of voter registration fraud to be specific. And the way that this happened was they would send out people to canvas neighborhoods and they would give them a quota. And if they met their quota, then they would say, get paid a bonus or something like that. Right. right? So these acorn workers were given, and these were just the same people who were also maybe on the next Tuesday coming by your house to see if you wanted to donate to the Sierra club too. Right. Right. Um, 
they they were given an incentive to create fake registrations, and a lot of them did. They and when these investigations were launched in multiple states into Acorn um, and voter registration fraud, it was found that these people weren't trying to pave the way for fraud at the polls, but that they were creating fake registration forms, very frequently duplicate registration forms for the same person, right, to get paid for work they hadn't done. To get paid from Acorn. Right. And that was the extent of it. So Acorn ended up disbanding, but they left a huge, huge blemish on the argument from the, the, the liberal side saying, we don't engage in voter fraud. Well, you're crazy for even thinking that. Now, forever, conservatives, especially people who aren't, who are, you know, let's just say conservatives, uh, can point to Acorn for the rest of a ter- the rest of time and be like, "Look, you guys did that." Right. So yes, there is such a thing as voter fraud in my mind, and you can't persuade me otherwise. Right. And as long as there's that kind of division, uh, there, there's you're not going to be able to persuade anybody that there's no such thing as voter fraud. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, all right, so should we talk about the eleven techniques? I'm pretty tired, man. I don't know. <laughs> Yes. Uh, all right. Number one. Number one on our list. <laughs> Voter caging. Um, Who was that? Was that your Carson? Oh, no. Sort of a, a Casey case of me. Oh, I hear sort it Sort of now. top 40 guy. <laughs> that was pretty good. Did you ever hear that great outtake when he had to read the, <laughs> yeah. the, the dead dog letter? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> pretty wonderful. That, that taught me to just shut up when a mic's hot. <laughs> was it dead dog? Was that it? I don't or remember dead mom specifically, or but it was it was a pretty funny outtake. Oh man, God bless him. Uh, all right, voter caging is when uh, you send mail uh, un un unforward forwardable. <laughs> That's really a mouthful. Mm-hmm. Mail which cannot be forwarded. <laughs> um, even better. Uh, send that mail to an address uh, that is uh, on the voter rolls, uh, and then and. When it's not, de- uh, when it's returned undelivered, basically they challenge and say this person no longer lives at this address, so they can't vote. Right. Which in and of itself is not scientific. Uh, <laughs> it's not illegal. It's right. when you target, say, Democrats, um, I think specifically minorities, it becomes illegal. You're, 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 you can't target any minority group, um, but I believe you can target the opponent's party, like registered party members. But the whole point is, is you're saying this person doesn't live there or else they would have gotten their mail. And because they don't live there, their their vote can't count. They should be purged from the rolls. Right. Uh, very famously happened in 1958 uh, when uh, this literature was sent to 18,000 registered Democrats. Uh, and then again in 1981 when um, Republicans sent thousands of letters to uh, minorities, blacks and Latinos mm-hmm. in New Jersey. And uh, that one actually caused such a stir that the, the RNC uh, got together with the DNC and said, you know what, I'm going to consent here uh, with a consent decree and we're not going to do it anymore. Right. They didn't just do that out of the goodness of their hearts. The DNC sued the RNC for that 1981 election because there was a lot of dirty stuff. And to this day, the RNC, if it does any, if it undertakes any um, uh, voter suppression techniques, wants to create any changes in in voting regularity, um, 
it has to get approval by the courts first. Correct. But that doesn't stop it from happening because now it's just uh, third party groups can do it now. Yeah. Because they're not part of the RNC officially or the DNC. Right. And so it still happens. Yeah. What about these flyers? Uh, these, so these kind of fall into a larger category of misinformation campaigns, right? Right. You got flyers, you got robocalls. Um, these are just so brazen. They really are. <laughs> like literally robocalls that say, Hey, your, your Democratic candidate has basically already won. So you just stay at home and relax tomorrow. Yeah. Black or, voter. Don't forget to vote on November 5th, Latino voter, even though Election Day is November 4th. Yeah, it's so. And, you know, I was about to say, how do they get away with it? But the it says right in here. Uh, uh, who is it? The co-director of the Voting Rights Group Advancement Project mm-hmm. says basically, you know, they're usually anonymous. So, like, how do you how do you go after someone? Do you wait around at mailboxes? You could arrest the mail carrier, I guess. Oh, I, I didn't even think about that. I was thinking that. They were just dropped in the mailboxes, but I guess they are mailed. <laughs> right. These guys with these like handlebar mustaches and like black capes <laughs> come in hand deliver these things. So basically there's no way to trace this stuff. Um, so as a, as a minority in a, in a minority neighborhood, you might get a flyer and a robo call saying a wrong date, like you said, or don't bother your candidates won mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, mail mail your absentee votes to this address, which is incorrect. Yeah. yeah, and this is like really, really underhanded stuff, super illegal stuff. But again, you can't unless you can trace it back to somebody who specifically and purposefully carried out this this campaign. Yeah, that or you can't do anything about it except go public and say no, 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 don't listen to that. Yeah, well, because what happens is you get a, uh, a Hispanic voter on the nightly news that says. I got a call that said I could vote by phone and right. half the people watching that probably think, well, like this guy probably didn't even understand that phone call. Right. And so it's chalked off as that when in fact he really did get a phone call saying he could vote by phone. Yeah. Well, yeah, that There's, happened in Nevada in 2008. I think that it, um, sorry, Nevada. <laughs> It'll always be Nevada to me. I'm sorry, Nevada. I know it drives you guys <laughs> bat poop, but. It's true. Yes. Nevada. Nevada. What else, Chuck? This is a big one. I got one. You ready? Yeah. Uh, felony disenfranchisement or felon disenfranchisement. Yeah. So there used to be, apparently the, the Greeks are the ones who came up with this, but it was really codified in, in the West through medieval Europe, where if you were a convicted bad guy, you would would undergo what was called a civil death, right? Yes. Um, and you like just your, lose all your rights. Yes, so much so, Chuck, that you could be murdered by another person, and you are no longer protected by the law. So the other person would get away with it scot free, right? Yeah. One of the things that you lost was any kind of representation you might have, or being able to participate in any kind of community processes, right? Sure. That carried over to the United States, but it really started to gain ground over the, um, right after reconstruction during the, the beginning of the Jim Crow period where, um, a lot of state legislatures enshrined in their state constitutions that if you were convicted of a felony, you lost your voting rights. 
And in some cases, you lost them forever. You had to appeal to the governor to restore them. Some states said you lost them while you're in prison. Other states said you lost them uh, after, say, if you were paroled, um, whenever your sentence was fully finished. But it, to some degree, uh, felons lost their right to vote and it stuck around. Yeah. You know, I got the current stats here. Okay. Uh, there are only two states right now that allow an incarcerated felon to vote. Do you know what those are? One is Vermont. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is the other, I want to say New Hampshire, but I don't know. That, that would be an obvious guess, but, uh, Maine. Mm. So close, Those man. Crazy Mainers. It's a, that Canada rubbing off on them. <laughs> uh, voting rights restored automatically upon release. Uh, DC, Hawaii, Illinois, Indiana, Massachusetts, Michigan, Montana, New Hampshire, North Dakota, Ohio, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, and Utah. <laughs> uh, You're like the FedEx guy from the eighth. <laughs> rights restored automatically once released from prison and discharged from parole. Probationers can vote. California, Colorado, Connecticut, New York. Uh, restored automatically upon completion of sentence, including prison, parole, and probation. And, uh, a bunch of other ones. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. How about this? Everyone but these last two. Okay. Uh, voting rights restored, uh, dependent on type of conviction or outcome of petition, uh, to the government, Alabama, Delaware, Mississippi, Nevada, Tennessee, Wyoming, and only restored through individual petition to the government, Florida, Iowa, Kentucky, and Virginia. Right. So the ones that you did not hear were uh, upon completion, including prison, parole, probation. So uh, people might say, don't don't do the crime. Right. Sure. So if you if you like on, on the one hand, it makes sense, like you've given up some sort of civil liberties because you you did commit some horrible, heinous crime. Other people say, well, OK, well, then maybe once you've done your time, you should get your your rights back. The problem is, is. In the United States, there is um, a real racial disparity between people who are convicted of felonies uh, who are black and everybody else. Right. Yes. So overall, 7.7 percent of the United States African-American population as a whole does not have the right to vote because of a felony conviction for the rest of of the United States overall, just 1.8%. That's including all every other race, right. right? So there's out of the gates, there's disproportionately more convicted felons among the African-American population in the United States than everybody else, right? But then when you start boiling that down to voting rights on a state level, it, it becomes painfully clear that this certainly seems strategically targeted, these these laws. In Florida, one in four of Florida's black residents in 2016 couldn't cast a ballot because they were disenfranchised for being felons. Yeah, one in four. Florida was one of the ones that uh, one of the four states where you had to have an individual petition uh, approved by the government. Right. So one one quarter. And that's not saying one quarter of the the uh, voting population of African-Americans in Florida. That's that's the whole population. Right. Um, and th- since African-Americans have traditionally voted Democrat, any law that says you know, you're a felon, you can't vote. Right. You can just leave it at that and make your own your own surmises about it. Right. Surmises. 
It's a word now. Sermations? Sermations. <laughs> that's what I was looking for. Uh, voter ID laws. That's sort of a, a, obviously a big one because it's probably when you hear most about in the news. Um, as of this year, 32 states have laws requiring, uh, or requesting ID when voting. Uh, West Virginia is coming in 2018. Um, so that would make 33 states. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we mentioned Texas earlier. That's one of the states where they say like, oh, well, um, you can use your gun permit, but you can't use your college student ID, even though the state has issued both of those. Right. Because if you're a student, you're possibly more likely to vote Democrat. If you are a gun owner, you're probably more likely to vote GOP. Right. Uh, and if you're talking nationally, 11 percent of Americans don't have current state issued photo IDs. Um, there's a lot of reasons why. Uh, maybe you're elderly or uh, disabled or both and you can't drive. So, A, you don't need a driver's license. B, you have a hard time getting to the DMV just to get an ID, like a non-driving ID, state-issued ID, um, to vote. And uh, once again, uh, historically, uh, these people might be more apt to vote Democrat. So it's it's hard to not look at it along those lines. Right. And a lot of people say, well, there was this this commission back in, uh, I think, 2005. American University sponsored a bipartisan commission to look into voter ID laws, right? Yeah. Whether they suppressed voting or whether they would prevent fraud. And it was led by former Reagan chief of staff James Baker and former president Jimmy Carter, right? Two opposite sides of the coin. Yeah. But two statesmen, you could make the case. Sure. So, um, so what they found is that both groups' concerns were valid. Yes, voter ID could prevent voter fraud. Yes, voter ID laws would suppress voting. So they suggested the government Among minorities, specifically, right. yeah. Minorities, women, the elderly, and the disabled right. are the ones who are most likely to be affected by voter ID laws. And the poor. Right, yes, sorry. The, the elderly, the poor, <laughs> women, the disabled, and minorities. Yes. All five of those groups tend to vote Democrat, too. So voter ID laws um, could be enacted to prevent fraud, said this commission. But if you're going to do that, you need to basically give out IDs and you have to make access to these IDs um, extremely easy. And so Texas, who has a very strict ID law, you have to show a photo ID to vote um, and only specific ones said, okay, well, then we'll, we'll undertake this. We'll give away free IDs, but, um, you got to produce some documents to get the ID. So for example, you might need to produce a birth certificate. If you don't have your birth certificate, you have to go get a copy of it. And if you were born before 1950, then you have to go to wherever count, whatever county you were born in, because they're not computerized records. You have to go to the county clerk's office, get it, pay $42 for the copy, and then come back and get your ID. And hopefully you also remember the other two pieces of documentation that you have to bring with you to get this free ID. And this investigation, I think it was a court case, found that in the 15 months leading up to the 2014 midterm elections, Texas's free voter ID registration drive managed to issue just 297 IDs for the entire state over a 15-month period. Well, and this whole thing with you have to go to the county where you were born if you're basically elderly. Right. Like, have you ever driven across Texas? 
Well, plus, if you're poor, remember that poll tax? You, you calculated the $1.50 poll tax in yeah. Texas. It came out to be about 40-something dollars. Well, it costs $42 to get a copy of your birth certificate to get that free ID. Some people say that's a modern poll tax, almost down to the penny. Wow. That's a modern poll tax. If you are poor, if you are broke, if you have trouble making ends meet, 42 bucks is a lot. Yeah. And if you're on the fence about voting, like you really want to vote. And that's you if should... you can get there to begin with. Right. Like so I you was should... born in Lubbock, but I live in San Antonio. Right. And I don't have a car. So all of these things, like these are to, to a person who believes if you really want to vote, you're going to, you're going to make it through hell and high water to vote. Yeah. All of these excuses that we've just thrown out are just falling on deaf ears, right? Yeah. But if you really step back and put it into context and really think about it from a, a realistic point of view, like these are hardships. This is tough stuff. And if you're, if you're a voter and you really want to vote, um, th- it could dissuade the average person from doing that. And it, 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 from, from everything I've read, it is really easy to overlook how difficult it can be to get an ID for people who who already have an ID and use them every day and have probably had one ever since their parents took them to the DMV when they were 16 to get their first driver's license. It's really easy to act like it's not a big thing to get an ID when in reality the the poorer, the more disabled um and, and the 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 more minority you are, the harder it actually is. Yeah. There was a study in uh 2014 by Rice University and not to pick on Texas, but this, you know, it's Rice University. I think Texas brought this on themselves. <laughs> the University of Houston. Uh, Texas's 23rd congressional district found that 12.8% of registered voters who didn't vote cited lack of required photo ID. So almost 13% didn't vote. And they said this because I don't, I don't have the, the proper identification and only three, 2.7% of those people actually didn't have the right identification. So a full 10% had the right ID and didn't vote because they didn't think they did, which, and you know what? We'll take a break and talk about it after this. But the reason that's not happening is because of things like, uh, billboards and poll watchers and other intimidation techniques. So we'll talk about that right after this. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com. One place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, 
Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so I set that up with the study from Rice University. Uh, 13% in the 23rd Congressional District in Texas did not vote because they didn't think they had their right ID, even though 10% of that 13% did have the right ID and just didn't vote uh, because they were, I don't know, misinformed by a billboard and scared to go to a polling place? Yeah. Has that ever happened? Sure, it's happened. There's been plenty of billboards that have like... um, prison bars or something on them. It says like voter fraud is a felony. And apparently these billboards that are sponsored by uh, dark money groups that have no direct ties to say like the GOP or the campaigns of a candidate um, are, they sprout up, they tend to sprout up in um, poorer neighborhoods, minority neighborhoods, um, neighborhoods that are more likely to be intimidated by billboards like that rather than just laugh at them and, and flip them off. Um, it's it, apparently the jury's out on whether they have an effect or not, but it it, it is it, it's intended to be voter intimidation. Yeah, they use threatening language, uh, like you said, like someone behind bars, and all of a sudden, let's say you're a, a, a newly naturalized citizen, or you are a, a felon that's now out and cleared your parole and everything, and you see those bars, and you're like, well, I'm not going to take a chance, right, and going to vote because I might be locked up. And again, the, the disingenuous argument number 8092 is, well, if you're not a criminal, you got nothing to worry about. Right. Which just completely disregards the psychological impact that something like bars and crime and felon have on a person seeing a billboard that's shouting that at them. Uh, if you actually are, you know, f- fight your way through that and say, you know what, I'm going to vote anyway. I'm not scared of the billboard. And you might show up to your polling place to find uh, what's known as a poll watcher who are there to scout out uh, potential voter fraud. Uh, what has g- generally, in many cases, amounted to intimidation squads uh, kind of right there at the front door. Yeah. Do you remember um, I said that the RNC got in a lot of trouble for the 1981 election for a bunch of stuff? Oh, yeah. This is another one. One of the things that they had in this 1981, I believe, New Jersey election was called the National Ballot Security Task Force. And it was basically off-duty cops wearing guns, wearing blue armbands, patrolling polling stations who were basically ostensibly looking for voter fraud. But they, the court sided with the, the DNC's contention that they were meant to intimidate Voters who were likely to vote for Democrats. Why, just because they were there with guns? Yeah. <laughs> like, you don't want some dude just walking around, like, looking at you, watching you, you know, what are you doing here kind of thing. Like, no, that's not, that's not what the polling station doesn't belong to one group. It belongs to everybody and no one should be made to feel like they're a threat or they are not welcome at this 
polling station. It's not that guy's polling station. He doesn't have any right to walk up and down with a gun intimidating people. What a despicable thing to do with your time. Yeah. I mean, how about this? The, uh, the conservative group True the Vote, their national elections coordinator was, he was, you know, talking about poll watchers. He said that he wanted voters to quote, feel like they are driving and seeing the police following them. Yes, that's quote. not it's not how you're supposed to feel when you go vote. No. At at the polling precinct. Like that's a quote. Yeah. He wanted them to feel scared. And that was in 1981. That was from the 2016 election. Oh that, yeah, yeah, that's that not guy. an old one. No. So, um it, it's not it, it hasn't just been say uh GOP leaning voters who have done poll watching there there was a very famous case in the 2008 election in Philadelphia where the new Black Panther Party for Self Defense which as we pointed out in our Black Panther episode is not affiliated with the Black Panthers they're kind of like this new offshoot group that that took over the name right um i think they were arrested for voter intimidation for Basically doing the same thing, but with a police baton rather than, say, a gun. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't care who you are or what side you're on. Don't intimidate voters at the polls. No. I don't know if I could, if I said that clearly enough yet. That's a disgusting thing to do. Josh is going to come after you. <laughs> yeah, I'm watching you. Uh, early voting is um, is one thing that, that you say in your writing here that I agree with that like who could argue with early voting because it works. People love it. Voters like it. Elected officials like it. Uh, it's been a really big success in the states that that do it like a lot. I think almost a third of this past election, people early voted, me included. Right. Um, so like everyone should love this, right? Sure. Yeah. And it, it, it really, really works. It gets voter participation up. And like you said, the lines are not long. There's not like long waits on election day. Um, and yet, despite that, despite everybody basically loving early voting, there have been cutbacks since, um, 2011 in eight states rather than this decades long trend, which had been leading up to, uh, you know, the, I think 2008 election, which is when it really came on. Um, there's been cutbacks rather than continuing forward with getting early voting out there. Um, and these eight states um, are, except for West Virginia, GOP governored states. Um, and the reason why um, people who are critics of these laws um, or changes to the rules point out, the reason why that these are being done is because in the 2008 election, this early voting was used by far and away more by African-American voters who voted for Obama and the Democrats than uh, white voters and specifically white GOP voters. Right. Something like 70 percent of early of African-Americans in the 2008 election voted early compared to like 50 percent of white voters in the 2008 election. I'm not sure what the breakdown was for Democrat to GOP, but I'm quite sure it was lopsided in favor of the, the Democrats in that, right? So that happened, and then all of a sudden, the midterm elections of 2010 were just a bloodbath for the Democrats and swept GOP um, governors and legislatures into power. And as a result, um, early voting was cut back under new laws that were introduced in these new sessions. Yeah, and Sunday voting was a big deal, too. Um 
historic black churches have had a, a, a big, uh, a great success story in organizing uh, this campaign called Souls to the Polls, where they would get their church members to the polling stations on Sundays to vote. It's been a big success. And so what happens when there's a big success for a minority group organizing and getting registered is states push back. Uh, Ohio and Florida specifically banned voting on Sunday, uh, the Sunday before the election. Sorry. Uh, not just any Sunday. Yeah. Uh, and that's when these, uh, the black churches had organized to vote for the Souls to the Polls campaign. Uh, and it made a big deal. Um, and, uh, more than 18% of, uh, Floridians who voted on the last Sunday of early voting in 2008, uh, did not vote at all in 2012 because, well, maybe not just because they weren't allowed to vote, but that was, that right was taken away from them. And so 18% didn't vote in 2012. So you do the math. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's that's a significant amount of voters in Florida alone. And again, it's it's targeted like that. They do the research and they find out the data on where these votes coming from. When are they being cast? Who is casting them? And now let's put in as many laws. Let's bend the law however we can to try and keep those people from voting. Like, like there have been, there was, who was the guy, there was a legislator in Pennsylvania that was, that bragged during the Romney election, like, hey, our voter suppression techniques are going to give this to Romney. Right. There's a legislator. Yeah, it's true. So, um, you know, it's funny to some people listening right now, we sound paranoid. (laughs) So early voting is suppressed and as a result, it, it can, it can lead to voter suppression as well, right? Yeah. You've, you've also got, um, voter registration. We already talked about ACORN registering people, but typically, um, voter registration drives like the soul of the polls campaign, um, have an effect f- on Democrats votes. So curtailing those can lead to, um, can lead to a suppression of votes for, um, among Democratic voters, right? Yes. And we've been picking on the GOP basically this whole time. Dude, I went all over looking for instances of Democrats doing robocalls and using intimidating billboards. Um, and I didn't find it. They're just not out there. Yeah, that's if they specifically are, robocalls where they them, deliver misinformation. Right. Or yeah. send out um, deliberately misinforming flyers um, or supporting laws that end early voting. I didn't find it anywhere. This all seems to be, at least in this current incarnation, a GOP-led wave of voter suppression laws, right? Yeah. There is one type of voter suppression that um, Democrats do favor, though, uh, basically across the board and around the country, and it's called off-cycle, off-cycle election scheduling. Yeah, that's when, um, if you may notice, that there'll, there'll be an election and you're like, what? There's an election coming up? Well, why haven't I heard anything about it? It's because it might be for the city council or the local, you know, it's, it's very much local, locally based and right. Democrats, um, they know that those are not very heavily, uh, voted, you know, it's very low voter turnout for that. So if it's a referendum on like something that has to deal with the teachers or a specific uh, union or something, they know about it and they're really going to turn out to vote and basically, have that one in the bag. 
Right. And, and teachers unions and city workers unions and basically any unions typically are democratic leaning, right? Democrat leaning. So, um, through this off cycle election scheduling, by cutting down on voter participation, they're increasing the impact that these Democrat leaning groups have on that vote, right? Well, yeah, because everyone wants a consolidated elections. Like you poll people, you poll people. <laughs> Sure. And everyone will say, you know, I'd kind of really rather just vote on everything all at once. Right. But um, this this idea of controlling local elections, especially uh, local school boards, um, leads to accusations of controlling developing minds of America's children. Right. So Republicans have taken notice of this strategy. And um, this this is from this uh, great article from uh, Eaton Hirsch from 538. And he talks about a political scientist named Sarah Anzia, who, um, who was studying this. And she found that between 2001 and 2011, uh, over 200 bills aimed at consolidating elections, getting rid of off-cycle elections, um, were floated across the country. Half of them specifically on focused on moving school board election dates. But only 25 became law. Most of the time, the bills were sponsored by Republicans and killed by Democrat Democratic pushes. Yeah. So there is definitely voter suppression techniques. And apparently uh, Democrats will say, well, you know what? People who aren't that informed uh, aren't going to turn out for these off cycle elections anyway. That's good. And people say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's the same criticism, yeah. the same justification that the GOP uses to justify their voter suppression techniques. And you're using it for yourself. So, you know, that really sucks when people do that. Yeah. What is that called? Uh, oh, yeah, hypocrisy. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a word. Uh, so, you know, this this is all still happening. Um, I mean, a lot of these examples are kind of throughout history. Um, but this is still going on and especially after the 2000 election, uh, and this most recent one, it's, it's pretty clear that like a, a few thousand votes can swing and swing an election. Yeah. And so this stuff matters. Yeah. Uh, uh to, to fight it and, uh, whoever's trying to suppress votes, it can make a difference. Right. And so specifically, um, well, there's this one study that found after that huge surge. So you remember after the 15th Amendment was passed where. Um, oh, I remember. So <laughs> the the uh, the black population of men at least suddenly had the right to vote. It threatened the status quo. So the status quo, the uh, establishment went to come up with new loopholes and, and issues to, to, to make barriers to voting, right? Yeah. After the 2008 election, there was a huge surge in African-American voting, threatened the status quo. So the establishment came up with new loopholes, right? Um, and the there was a study from the University of Massachusetts, should be totally disregarded because that's an elite academic education, and therefore liars. Um, <laughs> but they, they did a study that... Um, the more states saw increases in minority and low income voter turnout, the more likely it was to have laws floated that pushed back on voting rights, that cut voting rights during this 2013 study. And apparently there is this wave of um, voter ID laws specifically that just hit the country after the 2010 elections, those 2010 bloodbaths. Um 
there, the, the country was suddenly just flooded with state and local bills that sought to require voter ID, right? And it came out of nowhere, seemingly. Somebody, this group called News 21, like a journalism student who did an investigation um, under the auspices of the Carnegie Knight Journalism Foundation, they trace this back to ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council. And they deserve a podcast themselves. Sure. For sure. But basically, they're a group that was founded, I think, back in the 70s or 80s um, that brings together elected officials in the United States who pay something like $100 in dues every two years with corporations that pay thousands and thousands of dollars in dues every year. And they get them together and they say, hey, what do you what do you need to make business easier for you? Oh, well, um, it would be great if we could get the Democrats to not vote quite so easily. So let's come up with some voter ID laws. They come together, they draft model legislation, and then the ALEC members go back to their various state legislatures or um, national legislatures and say, hey, I've got an idea. Here's a bill. Let's pass it. And so from this 2009 meeting in Atlanta, actually, um, a, a, a draft voter ID legislative model was produced and it suddenly just appeared everywhere around the country starting in about 2010. Yeah. So apparently that's what's going on right now. Uh, that That's behind this current wave of especially voter ID laws, but also uh, voter suppression laws that are going on like the The history in this country of voter suppression is pretty shameful, but it's even more shameful that we're doing it again, it seems. Yeah, North Carolina is a pretty good example of uh, recent years. Um, in 2013, they uh, there was a law that um, led by the GOP that did a bunch of things. It eliminated same-day voter registration, uh, cut a full week of early voting. Uh, it barred voters from casting a ballot outside their home precinct. Uh, they said you could no longer straight-ticket vote. Uh, and then they got rid of a program that would pre-register high school students who would be uh, voting age by election day. Scrap right. High school students that wanted to vote uh, that would pre-register them said no. Too dangerous. Yeah. So uh, and had one of the, the, the most strict voter ID requirements in the country. Uh, this one actually went to court and it was struck down uh, and the judge uh, ruled that it, quote, uh, I'm sorry, that um the intention to suppress African-American voters uh, was, quote, with almost surgical precision. Uh, and the court noted that lawmakers first studied which racial demographics use which voting methods, then moved to eliminate those favored by black residents. Right. So, like, they actually found out. They did these studies and looked at the data and said, all right, this is how black people are voting in North Carolina. So let, let's try and make that much more difficult for them to do so. I think the judge that overruled or struck down that those that basket of laws also said that it read like it was written in 1901. Yeah. So North Carolina got pantsed in front of everybody because I guess they were too aggressive. But plenty, plenty of other states uh, were able to pass <laughs> new laws of varying strictness um, as far as voting suppression goes Uh since the since 2011, well, North Carolina just got pants this week for the racial gerrymandering. Yeah, I, I, gerrymandering is another episode we need to do too. Yeah. So, um, what, what the whole thing comes down to, I think we said earlier too, Chuck, is with these laws, right? There's there's kind of a litmus test that's emerged. Are 
are the results of these laws more likely to be to to prevent voter fraud or to suppress votes? And ironically, it seems like it's going to be Donald Trump's commission that that could conceivably put an end to this debate with what they find with the with the uh, voter fraud investigation, which uh, seriously, I cannot tell you how interested I am in finding out what they find and hearing all the grisly details from it. You think it'll be on the no- or uh, on the up and up? I, I don't know, but I don't know if it's not there. The, the, we'll hear all about it. I can tell you that. Yeah. I don't know, man. I'm I'm just I'm very curious to see what they what they find or even if it just falls away. I think the worst thing for this would be if it's just allowed to just just fall to the wayside, because, I mean, if we can get it out in the open and discussed and investigated and all that kind of stuff, I mean, who knows? Maybe they maybe they did. What if they legitimately found that massive voter fraud was a huge problem? Well, then, sure, maybe we should have voter ID laws. Who knows? But if they find that that's not the case, then we can say, all right, this law is going to suppress votes. There's no such thing as massive voter fraud. So this law should be struck down. Just let people vote. Yeah. You know, real. Agreed. Like who? who is one person to say, you know, that they're not as up on politics and they don't they don't really take the time. So they shouldn't be allowed the vote. I mean, that is so anti-American. You have to be an elitist to think like that. Like that's a, an elitist thinking, regardless of what your party affiliation is. Yeah. You got anything else? <sighs> no. Well, this is probably the last one we'll ever be allowed to record. So it's been nice, Chuck. Uh, I've enjoyed working with you. Been nice, Jerry. Uh, if you want to know more about voter suppression laws, you can type those words in the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. Uh, and since I said voter suppression, it's time for listener mail. Uh, yeah, and you know what? Before I do listener mail, for to listeners who are upset at us right now, like send us in a a thoughtful, researched email of refutation. You know? Mm-hmm. That's what I want to see. Yeah, because I'd like to think, like... Give me some proof of stuff. Yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, I'm going to call this uh, Fan Theory. Oh, this is a good one. That, that you picked out. Yeah. Josh? Uh, I really enjoyed your show, guys, on the crazy fan theories. Thought I'd share one I came up with a couple of years ago. It involves To Kill a Mockingbird... Go set a Watchman, which was the famous sequel to mm-hmm. that book, uh, and Back to the Future Part One, and Back to the Future Part Two, which was the very famous sequel to Back to the Future Part One. Right. I added that. Nice. Uh, did you know that the courthouse steps in the movie adaptation of Mockingbird, the very same as the courthouse in the Back to the Future movies? I did not know that. Did you? Well, I didn't. I've been on the Universal lot and walked those steps, though. Mm-hmm. So I was just like, in my mind, I was thinking, well, it's just a movie lot, dude. <laughs> uh, so he says, aside from from it being on the Universal lot, the reason for this has to be that both To Kill a Mockingbird and Back to the Future take place in the same town. Oh. Well, that's not true. No, but still. To kill with a, it, Chuck. <laughs> to Kill a Mockingbird depicts the town in the 1930s and the trial that exposes the deeply racist tendencies among its people. This is why in 1955, it would have never occurred to a black malt shop worker, uh, I believe Goldie, was yeah. that not right? Future uh, Mayor Goldie. That he could one day become mayor until some guy from the future 
accidentally suggests it. This is falling apart for me already. I love this idea. Uh, in Back to the Future 2, uh, Marty steals a sports almanac from 2015, which winds up in Biff's hands in 1955, creating an alternate timeline mm-hmm. from that point forward. Some 20 years after To Kill a Mockingbird, Scout returns home and goes at a watchman. Uh, but it's set in the alternative uh, timeline, which is why at least one character, Atticus Finch, seems very different. Mm-hmm. Because isn't he, like, racist in this yeah. sequel? Yeah, and it's Marty McFly's fault. <laughs> Ghost at a Watchman was written in 1957. It is uh, the To Kill a Mockingbird of the alternate timeline. To Kill a Mockingbird was published in 1960, is the version of the book written in the timeline Marty fixes when he burns the almanac at the end of Back to the Future 2. I'm completely lost on that one. <laughs> and he says, how fitting that Ghost at a Watchman was published in 2015. Yeah. And that bit of uh, fan theoryishness is brought to you by Brian uh, McBurney. Nice job, Brian. That was outstanding. It did have its uh, holes. It was a little rough around the edges, but you're using your noodle, and I like it. Yeah, that's better than Angela Lansbury is a serial killer. <laughs> it is. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us like Brian did and send us a really cool fan theory you thought of yourself that holds up, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. I'm also at Josh underscore um underscore Clark. Uh, you can hang out with Chuck on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Charles W. Chuck Bryant. You can also hang out with them at Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us both and Jerry and Noel and Frank the Chair an email to StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF. 20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life, immerse myself in natural beauty, and have unique experiences. But you don't have to leave the U.S. to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island. It becomes part of you. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com.